0: Uh, the reading from tonight comes from Judges three, verses seven through eleven. Follow along the screen or a handout. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sought and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died.
1: We're going through the book of Judges this semester, which is an Old Testament book, and we've been saying for the past couple of weeks that the book of Judges is a series of true stories. It's a collection of uh, true stories in the Old Testament that are written with the intention of showing you that you have a, a, a great need for a Savior and that you have a great Savior for your need. And last week, if you were here, uh, we kind of we, we did a little PowerPoint, and I and I walked you through this cycle that repeats itself all throughout the book. And the cycle is this kind of four-step process. There's disobedience, and then there's disaster, and then there is a desire for help, and then there's deliverance. And in fact, you see all four of those cycles played out right here in the very next section in chapter three. So if you look at it in. Uh, in verse 7, the people disobey God, and then they experience disaster when God hands them over to this weird-named foreign king that Porter read so eloquently. And then in verse 8, they, uh, the, verse 9, they have a desire for help. They cry out to the Lord, and then through 9 through 11, he, he, they experience deliverance. Bam, there it is. So before we dive into this story a little bit more deeply, I wanted to share with you something that happened in my life uh, at the end of last semester, the end of the fall semester. So early in the morning, and I was driving my son Reed to school. Some of y'all know Reed from Reed Plays Basketball. And um, uh, he goes to school about 10 minutes away from our house. And so I'm on the road, just me and him driving, listening to music, whatever. And I noticed that my car starts rattling in a weird way. And the the check engine light flashes on the dashboard. And I do what any red-blooded American does, is I ignored it. And I kept driving because it wasn't that far to get to his school. So Uh, We get to the school. I walk him inside, check him in. He's done. I get back in the car, and I start heading back home. And now on the ride home, the car is really rattling and sounded weird. And I'm like, something is not right. As soon as I get home, I am going to call the mechanic and set up an appointment. But before I can get home, I look in my rearview mirror, and there is thick white smoke billowing out the back of my car. So I I instantly panic and skirt and like whip it over to the side of the road as quick as I can, stop the car, turn off the engine and I grab my bag which was next to me and I exit the car and I'm running away from this car that is now engulfed in smoke and I'm fully expecting it to be like a slow motion scene of a movie with the car exploding behind me as I'm running through through the streets and I get a safe distance away, it didn't explode disappointing, and um, (laughs) I wait, and eventually the smoke kind of stops, and I reapproach the vehicle, and uh, I get back in, and I try to start it, and it doesn't start, so I do what any guy does, is I pop the hood, and I go around to the front, and I open it up. Now, you have to know, I know nothing about cars. (laughs) I have no idea what I'm looking at. It's just engine stuff. I was just hoping it would be very obvious, like a cat in there or something. <laughs> Everything looked functional to me, so I didn't know what else to do. So we called the tow truck, tow truck comes and gets it, takes it away, takes it to the mechanic, mechanic diagnoses it, fixes it. I have my car back. But I begin that way because I want you to think about that little episode as a, as a metaphor of your life. In many ways, uh, as you're driving down the road of in the car of your life. The, um, this, this metaphor is going to be bad. Um, as you're going along, you do have this check engine light that comes on. And I think the form that the check engine light comes on with most of us is you kind of have these nagging questions that kind of pop up in your soul or in your head, which is, you know, why, why, why do I struggle in the way that I struggle? Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Why do I... Uh, st- why, why can I never seem to do the things that I want to do? Why do I feel trapped? Why do I feel stuck? Why do I feel so anxious? Why do I feel so driven? Uh, what is wrong with me? And you have these thoughts. You have these questions. You kind of have the light that flashes on. And like me with my car, you just kind of learn to ignore it and move on with your life. you got other stuff to do. you got homework. you got Whatever. But sometimes the, the smoke overflows in your life and you really do feel like, you've, like you're, you're broken down on the side of the road and you have to stop and you have to address the questions because you literally are falling apart, as it were. And it's hard to understand what's going on in your own heart. It's kind of like me looking at the engine of my car. It's like, I don't know what this is. And so what I want to do is, is I think that this passage in Judges, as, as weird and as antiquated as it is, in some ways it functions like this mechanic that comes on the scene from the outside and understands your heart and my heart way more than we do. And I'm going to try to pitch to you that if unless you understand the Bible's diagnosis of what's going on in the engine of your heart, then you will never be able to understand yourself and you'll never really be able to understand the world around you. And that's this, that, you have to, that the Bible's diagnosis is that your heart is permeated and damaged by this thing called sin. Now, sin is a. Uh, it's an. It feels like it's an outdated word. It feels like it's a, uh, a non-PC kind of word. But my thesis is, again, you will not understand yourself. You will not understand the people around you. You will not understand the world that you woke up in this morning unless you understand the biblical's understanding of what sin is. And I'm going to try to show you tonight that the Bible's understanding of sin is so much more uh, sophisticated and. Uh, complex than you might initially think. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at three things tonight. Let's look at the heart of sin. Let's look at the result of sin, and then we'll look at the remedy of sin. Heart, result, remedy. So the heart of sin. Look at verse. Um, look at verse seven. It says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, stop right there. Most people when they see the people of Israel did evil. When people think about sin, they think, "Well, that means you're doing evil things." That's kind of what it sounds like, right? They're murdering, they're stealing, they're, they're whatever. They're doing these big, flagrant, bad things. We think of sin as uh, bad behavior, and it is that. But, but it's it's something so much more sophisticated. Um, this is where the Bible gets into the, explaining the heart of sin, meaning what is it underneath. Those behaviors, what is driving, what is fueling people to do those, quote, bad behaviors? And uh, look, at, look at what the next, or the verse, how it continues. Here's how it explains what the evil is that they were doing. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, I, I, I mentioned this briefly last week, but every commentator that I read says, when it says that they forgot the Lord, it doesn't mean that they forgot about God. It just means they stopped caring about God. They believed in God intellectually. He just didn't matter to them. It's kind of like um, my relationship with the Pythagorean theorem. (laughs) A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I believe that that's true. I sign off on it intellectually. But as I go through my day, as I go through my life, I care very little about the Pythagorean theorem. It, it, It intersects with my life Never, and, and uh, that's kind of like what the people of Israel doing. They, they were like, yes, I believe in God. I believe that he exists. I believe that he's there, but when it came to their functional life, he didn't really matter. He mattered about as, about as much as the Pythagorean theorem, and it says... They forgot about God, and then they started serving these other gods, the Baal and the Ashereth, which, again, I mentioned last week, but these are pagan Canaanite gods of, like, the weather and fertility, which meant that they promised uh, security and money and stability and happiness. So here's what I want you to see. There's this pattern here. The people of Israel, they trade one god for another. They, uh, when, as soon as they say no to the God of the Bible, they instantly say yes to some other god. And here's the point is that this is showing you that the, part of what it means to be a person, part of the human condition, is that you cannot not worship something. Worship is unavoidable. If you say no to the God of the Bible, you've already said yes to some other God. You don't worship X unless you believe and first uh, already be worshiping Y. Worship is unavoidable. Now, I realize some of you might take offense uh, at that and realize, well, I, I, I'm throwing a flag on the play because uh, that may be true for these people back then, In their culture, when they were kind of ancient and superstitious and they believed in all these different gods, of course it would make sense why they would just trade one god for the other. No, I'm not going to worship that god, but I'm not going to worship this god. But that's not how it is in our modern context. I mean, you can't say atheists worship something. In fact, that's what an atheist is. Atheist means they they don't believe in God, they don't worship. This is not how secular people are. So goes the objection. And here's the response that I want to give to that. Um, I, I included this little quote in your handout, um, right under the scripture passage, by this guy named David Foster Wallace. Some of you might be familiar. He is a, He's not a Christian. He's a secular, uh, postmodern author and thinker. He, he wrote this giant book called Infinite Jest. I feel, like some, I feel like I've talked about this book with some of you before. It's, I, I tried reading it when I was an RUF intern, but it's like eight million pages. I think I read three, and I was like, <laughs> no. So... Giant awesome book, but here's this guy who's not a Christian, and he was giving this uh, commencement speech at a small liberal arts college a number of years ago, and here, this is a quote directly taken from this speech. You can find the whole speech online. It's amazing, but here's what he says. Quote, I'm just going to read a, a, a portion of this. He says, um, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, this was extremely controversial for this man to say. Again, this is not a Christian, but he understands that worship is something so much deeper than you might think. You and I, we hear the word worship and we think it's the singing part of like a church service. Worship is like the part that you sing in like a a Christian event or a formal religious practice. But worship is not just singing, worship goes to something so much deeper. Whenever you look to something to provide you with ultimate happiness and meaning and security and identity, that is you worshiping. So actually, this, this guy that's not a Christian understands what worship is in a very biblical sense. Worship is unavoidable. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or not. Something inside of your heart is bound up to something and saying, this is where I'm going to get life from. So this is the heart of sin. The heart of sin... If I could put it in a nutshell, it's this, that you and I, we have a worship disorder. We look to things that aren't God to give us what only God can. That's, that's a, we have disordered worship. We love things that aren't God to try to give us what only God can. That's the heart of sin. That, that is the problem beneath all the other problems in your life. You could look at all your problems, all your addictions, all of your neuroses, and you could trace it back down to something underneath it that you worship something other than the God that you were designed to worship. Now, I recently heard a story about this uh, musician uh, that spent the larger part of her adult life in and out of mental institutions, just really struggled through her adult life. And um, her therapist met with her pastor to discuss what was going on with her was all, I guess, they had her permission, I hope. And so um, the therapist, who is not a Christian again, told the pastor guy, he said, you know, this, this uh, woman is a great, you know, she's a good musician. She was trained to be a musician, but she, she is not the world-class number one musician that her parents wanted her to be. And so her whole life, she has been living under enormous pressure from her parents to be this top-class, world-class musician, and she didn't achieve her goals, and now she is just crushed with this failure, this crushed by her parents' approval. And, And this therapist guy, again, not a spiritual Christian guy, he said she claims to believe in God, she even prays to God, but this is really her God. She believes in... Uh, she believes that Jesus is her salvation, but functionally speaking, getting her parents' approval is her is her real salvation. And what I thought was so fascinating with this story is that, here, again, here is this guy that's not a Christian that has diagnosed that she claims to believe in God, but, but practically speaking, her belief in God has no real impact on the way that her heart really functions. Because what is wrapped up in her heart is this other thing. If I could just be what I was told that I should be, then I will be happy. Then I will be somebody. That's what she's worshiping. So here's the thing. You can claim to believe in God. You can even claim that Jesus died for your sins. You you can worship God. You can sing songs to God. But the question is, what is it that really captures your imagination? What is it that takes up the most real estate, as it were, in your heart? Is it uh, being successful is it being seen in a certain way, being beautiful, being attractive, being funny? You know, it's, it's easy, uh, maybe the best way to understand what it is that your heart really worships is to think about what, what is the thing in your life that if it were taken away would make it feel like life would not be worth living anymore? What, it, what is the thing that if you lost it, maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe it's your parents' approval, maybe it's um, your reputation, how people see you, if you lost this thing, it would feel like life is over, then that's your real God. That's what you're really worshiping. And so see how, the, see how this is way more sophisticated and, 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 and complex than just being bad and breaking rules. It, the Bible understanding of sin is, is it's a worship disorder. That's the heart of sin. But okay, let's keep going. Let's look at the second thing. If that if that's the heart of sin, what's underneath it is that it's, there's a worship disorder going on. What happens when you trade the true God for a counterfeit God? What's the result? Well, look look at verse eight. The result of sin, it says that God sells his people over to this foreign king named Cushan-Rishathaim, which is Reed's new nickname after tonight. Cushan-Rishathaim, um, which here's this is kind of interesting. Cushan-Rishathaim. Uh, uh, subjugates them for eight years, but his name in Hebrew literally means Kushan. Don't know what that means. Kushan, double wickedness. That's what Rishathayim means, double wickedness. And so it gives this impression that here's this king that is uh, extremely oppressive, extremely harsh, extremely uh, mean with the people of Israel. They're, They're They're miserable. And here's the picture. They started worshiping something that wasn't God. They traded God for this other God, and it led to miserable slavery. That's the result. Whatever you trade God for, it always results in slavery. Always. You you give up worshiping God for something else, and that thing ends up controlling you. Let me give you an example of this, real-life example of this. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show, The Office. It's... um, it's the show on Netflix, and um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're familiar with uh, the part of the, the season, the, the, the series, when Michael Scott leaves, which is a sad day in the life of the show, but they bring in Will Farrell as the replacement, and his name is D'Angelo Vickers, which is the greatest name in all of sitcom-medy, and... Um, uh, so D'Angelo Vickers is this, is, you know, he's, he's in control of the office, and he starts to realize that Andy is like the office funny guy. And so there's this one amazing scene where they're in the break room, and, and Will Ferrell comes in, and, and it's just him and Andy in the little kitchenette, little area, and he sees Andy, and he's like, ah, oh, funny guy, make me laugh. Like, hey, you're funny, like, cheer me up a little bit. And Andy doesn't really know what to do, and so he starts doing this mime routine, and he's like, oh, hey. And Will Ferrell's just looking at him, just kind of not into it. So uh, Andy goes over to the little kitchen area, and he gets out some uh, bag of, you know, this little box of, like, tea, and so he's, like, starts fiddling with it, and he kind of throws it everywhere, and Will Ferrell starts to chuckle a little bit. And he's like, whoa, whoa, and he grabs the big Cheeto puffs things, and he's throwing them all over the place, and Will Ferrell's kind of laughing a little bit, and then he kind of, like, pretends like he's flailing over, and he gets the coffee pot, and he pours hot coffee all over his crotch, and Will Ferrell's, like, dying laughing now, and, and Will Ferrell looks at him, and he goes, drink some soap. And so Andy goes and he gets the little soap dispenser and he's like squirting the soap in his mouth and like, Will you know, D'Angelo Vickers just cracking up. It's, it's an amazing scene. You must look at it later. Um, but what I love about this scene is that Andy is worshiping the approval of his boss. In that moment, the thing that functionally matters to him the most is for him to make his boss laugh. And what does it result? He's, he's completely... He's lost all of his integrity. He has no boundaries. He can't say no. The boss literally says, drink soap, and he, he's doing it. He's, not, he's doing the things that he doesn't want to do. That's the definition of a slave. You're doing things that you don't want to do. He's being controlled by his, appro- by his desire to get the approval of his boss. And it's a ridiculous example, but it, you know this from your own life, right, where you have given your heart to something, and it has resulted in slavery where it becomes something that literally controls you. For some of you, maybe you're a Christian and and you have really tried to honor God with your sexuality. And you have you have fought the good fight and you have resisted temptation and you get to a point maybe where you say, I am just tired of saying no. I'm tired of resisting. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of feeling like a failure. And so you give in and maybe you just you push the boundaries with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You maybe go stay the night with them or something. And maybe you just kind of indulge a little bit and you get you know, a little bit down the road and then you realize, oh, this is not a good idea and you try to stop. And what happens? You can't. It's controlling you. You try to stop. Maybe you even fight and you set up accountability. You set up rules. You bring in people. You try to get help. You try to stop, but you can't stop because you're now a slave. You gave yourself to this thing and now it's controlling you. And maybe some of you, you've just gotten to the point where you just stopped fighting. You're like, you're like that, that slave that has just whose spirit has been so broken that you're just resigned that this is just the way it is now. Uh, maybe for some of you in the room, uh, for, for some of you ladies, getting, getting attention from guys is the thing that is most meaningful to you. When, when guys look at you a certain way... And uh, that makes you feel alive. That makes you feel like, yes, this is why. This is, this is what makes life worth living. And as, as a result of giving your heart to this feeling, it has started to control you. So much so where you are so self-conscious of how you look. You're so self-conscious of calorie intake. You're so self-conscious of what you post. You're so self-conscious of a million different things. And, and in fact, it's even unraveling your relationship with other people. Where if somebody gets the attention, if some other girl gets the attention from a guy, you are just eaten up with jealousy and self hatred and anger. It, it unravels your relationships. If if you put on pounds in a certain area, if you don't like the way that you look, then you feel overcome with self hatred. You feel ugly. You feel worthless. What is happening? You are being controlled by this slave master God that you have given your heart to. Disordered worship always leads to slavery. And it happens in our lives in a million different ways. Look at at the rest of this David Foster Wallace quote. We'll just pick up where I left off a second ago. He says, the only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Listen to this. This is so insightful. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, Then you will never have enough. You never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That is immensely insightful. I include, I wanted you to have the whole quote there so that you could read that and see it for yourself. But he is saying, whatever you give your heart to, it will eat you alive. And what's, what's really sobering and ironic and horrible about his own personal story is about three years after he gave this commencement address he committed suicide and i don't know what it was i don't know what it was that was at the center of his heart but his life story kind of played out that quote that whatever it was that he put at the center of his life it it, it ate him alive and here's what here's this here's the crazy thing if your heart says i don't want to live for god i want to live for my career I don't really care about God, I just want boys, or I just want money, or I just want uh, to be seen as a certain power, comfort, whatever it is. You do realize it would be the worst thing that could happen to you would be for God to give you the thing that you want, if it's not him. Because whatever that thing is, it will eat you alive, it will fail you, you will get it, and you will realize it, it was not what you hoped it would be. It was hollow, it was empty, and it left you with nothing left you with slavery. That's the result of sin. So, okay, what do we do? What, what, how do we get out of this? Well, let's look at the last thing, the remedy of sin. Look at verse 9. It says, They cried out to the Lord. Now, every, again, every commentator that I read says uh, that this is not them crying out to the Lord because they hate their sin. They're crying out to the Lord because they hate their situation. They're saying to God, uh, we want to keep our gods, we want to keep our idols, um, just make the pain stop. And what's bananas is that God actually responds to that. There, it's not because they're tricking him, it's not because they pulled the wool over his eyes, it's because he actually has compassion and he's moved because they're in pain. And so what does he do? Uh, he raises up a judge, a deliverer. Now the word deliverer there, this is, this is more uh, Hebrew fun, tonight. Uh, the word deliverer in Hebrew is the word Yeshua, which just literally means savior. And it's this dude named Othniel. It's, there's this Yeshua savior guy named Othniel. He comes on the scene. It says in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord uh, comes upon him and he goes into battle and he leads his people to military victory. He, he breaks the chains of Kushan Rishathaim, and the people of Israel have peace and there's flourishing. In fact, look at verse 11. It says, the land had rest for 40 years. For 40 years, finally, peace, comfort, rest. They're flourishing again. And notice how the story ends. It doesn't end with, and they lived happily ever after. It ends on a very dark note. Uh, the very last little line there, it says, um, and then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. And you know what the very next verse is? You know what Judges chapter 3, verse 12 is? You can look it up or flip there later. It says, and then the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They go right back on the cycle. And it shows you that as awesome as Othniel was, he couldn't fix the real problem because the real problem wasn't their circumstances, the real problem was them. The problem was their worship disorder, and he couldn't get in deep enough to fix this thing inside of him that needed fixing. And so what did God do? Centuries later, he sends another Yeshua, which is actually the Hebrew root behind the proper name Jesus. And just like Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jesus, only Jesus doesn't risk his life in battle for his people. He gives his life for his people. And unlike Othniel... Uh, He doesn't um, deliver his people merely from their circumstances, but he seeks to deliver them from what the real problem is, which was themselves to begin with. He comes in to fix their worship disorder. And so when you step back and you look at the story as a whole, the text is really inviting you to say, which God do you want to serve? You've got to pick what your heart is going to be drawn to and orbit around. Which God do you want to serve? Uh, do you want to serve a god that oppresses you when you serve it, or do you want a god that delivers you even when you don't? Do you want a god that? Uh, do you want to serve a god that brings about misery, or one that brings about peace and flourishing? Do you want to serve a god that punishes you when you fail, or one that forgives you when you fail? The God of the Bible is, is, is setting up this contrast between him and every other God that's available and saying, I'm the polar opposite of every other God that's out there. Every other God that's out there says, serve me, and maybe if you do it well enough, then maybe I'll reward you. And Jesus comes on the scene and said, I have come to serve you. I've come to stoop down and to serve you, to wash your feet, and to give myself for you. Every other God says, sacrifice for me, and if you do it enough, then maybe I'll reward you. And Jesus says, I have come, and I've come to sacrifice everything for you. Every other God says, come to me, and I will oppress you, and I will condemn you. And Jesus says, I have come to bear the condemnation that you deserve, so that in me there will be no condemnation for you. I've come to set you free. The God of the Bible is the only God that will forgive you when you fail him and He will fulfill you when you find him here 's how I want to end <clears throat> um, over the over the break. I was uh, mindlessly s- scrolling around Netflix and I saw this uh, show called "I am a killer," and I thought I should watch that <laughs> and um, so I watched the first episode. It was really fascinating. It's, it, it kind of zeros in on this inmate, this guy named james Robertson who he 's kind of this big uh, a white dude and he's bald and he's tatted up and he's missing teeth and he just looks mean and you start to hear his story and his whole life story he was his, his parents left him when he was a kid he was he's been in and out of prison his whole life and he was uh at the, at the point when the story picks up he had been serving a life uh sentence and i think he'd been in prison for like 30 something years at this point point. and so he decides to kill his cellmate to strangle his cellmate so that he could upgrade to death row, which was better living conditions. So it just shows you how kind of hardened and heartless this guy is. And as they're interviewing him, he's laughing about it. And he's like saying, um, you know, I don't care if they kill me. I'll at least be in better living conditions until I die. And at one point, it zeroes in on this like lawyer. I couldn't remember. Some, some lawyer or somebody that was familiar with his life story. And, and they said this thing that was really fascinating. They said... The reason why I think uh, James Robertson's life has played out like this is because he's never been loved. His parents didn't love him. They left him when he was little. He's never had friends. His, he, he, he lived his entire life and nobody on the planet has cared about him. And then the last 15 minutes of the episode start zeroing in on this inmate's distant cousin who lives in Greenville, Tennessee, which is not too far from here and this cousin starts writing him letters in death row, and James Robertson starts writing him back and they start exchanging letters and and the, you know the camera shows you at one point the, the the, the cousin pulls out like a box of letters, like long, heartfelt letters that they have written over the years to each other. The cousin and his family have, have gone down to the prison somewhere in Florida, I think, and they've gone down and visited him on multiple occasions, and they've kind of created this relationship. And at the, and at the end of the episode, they start going back and interviewing the inmate, and he looks totally different. And he says... Uh, I am trying really hard to stay in line in prison because I want to keep my my, my visitation privileges. That when my cousin comes to visit, I don't want to have screwed up or caused trouble in in prison and have lost my chance to connect with my cousin. And you see, and you're like, what has happened? Here's what's happened. He began to experience just even like a trickle of love and grace from somebody on the outside and it completely transformed it gave him a new it gave him a new will to live it actually started to change his behavior to where he was like i kind of want to do the right thing so that i can connect with this person that i've grown to actually love here's this man on death row and here's this guy coming from the outside who started to love him when he had nothing to gain from this relationship and what did it do it literally started to transform this guy's life because for the first time in his life he began to receive the fact that he was loved Don't you know that the gospel works the same way? You can claim to believe in God. You can claim to even believe that Jesus died for your sins. But until that becomes personal to you, until you receive it in your heart of hearts that you have been loved by him, then you will always still be controlled by these other counterfeit gods. When you see that here here you were on death row, And when God had nothing to benefit, he had nothing to gain from relating to you in this way, he comes to you from the outside and extends grace and mercy at infinite cost to himself. When you begin to see that, and you begin to see the beauty of who God is just in and of himself, and that touches your heart, that begins to transform you. And you know what happens to all of these other gods that you used to worship? Guess what happens? They begin to get demoted. Money stops being a god to you and it gets demoted and you know what it just becomes? It just becomes money. And you can take it or leave it. Having a relationship no longer is this controlling, essential thing in your life. It gets demoted and it just becomes a relationship. Take it or leave it. Every other thing that you used to find beautiful and worth giving your life to becomes demoted and it stops controlling you. But you know how that has to happen? The only way that that happens is is for this gospel stuff to, to get plucked out of theological stratosphere and abstract land and actually start pressing into your personal heart. And the way that you do that is you look at the cross and you personalize it. Because when you look at the cross, it tells you two things. It shows you, you have a great need for a savior. And you have a great savior for your need. And when that becomes real to you, when his grace and his love starts to matter to you, all the other gods gets demoted. So that's the invitation. For you tonight to look at the cross and to personalize it. To say that love and that grace was for me. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us when you had nothing to gain from extending grace to people like us on death row, hardened, disordered in our own worship. Our hearts are uh, a mess, and yet you have come and you have given yourself at infinite cost. And I pray that that would move us. I pray that that would, in some ways, electroshock our hardened hearts into believing again, into uh, worshiping the one that we were designed to worship. May our hearts find you beautiful and believable because of the goodness of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.